Good morning. We're going to get started, and I'm going to get started by answering Dennis's question from last week. How is it that Christ incarnate does not is not born with a sin nature? So I'm going to defer to Wayne Grudem. I'll tell you what he says because I think it <clears throat> clears it up, at least as best as it can be. The virgin birth makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. Uh, all human beings have inherited legal guilt and a corrupt moral nature from their first father, Adam. This is sometimes called inherited sin or original sin. But the fact that Jesus did not have a human father means that the line of descent from Adam is partially interrupted. Jesus did not descend from Adam in exactly the same way in which every other human being has descended from Adam. And this helps us to understand why the legal guilt and moral corruption that belongs to all other human beings did not belong to Christ. This idea seems to be indicated in the statement of the angel Gabriel to Mary, where he says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Because the Spirit brought about the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary, the child was to be called holy. Such a conclusion does not necessarily mean that the transmission of sin in the human race comes only through the Father, for Scripture nowhere makes such an assertion. It is enough for us merely to say that, it, that in this case, the unbroken line of descent from Adam was interrupted, and Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke 1.35 connects this conception by the Holy Spirit, with the holiness or moral purity of Christ. And reflection on that fact allows us to understand that through the absence of a human father, Jesus was not fully descended from Adam, and that, uh, and that this break in the line of descent was the method God used to bring it about that Jesus was fully human, yet did not share inherited sin from Adam. Does that work for you? Okay, good. <clears throat> okay, so today we're going to cover the second major event in the life of Christ. Uh, first, of course, was his birth today, and we're going to talk about his baptism. And this is uh, clearly considered a significant event because uh, there's an account of baptism in all four of the gospel Gospels. It takes place 30 years after his birth, and the location is in the River Jordan. Now, we're going to read through uh, all of chapter 3 this morning in Matthew. It's the account of, at least Matthew's account of the baptism. So if you want to turn there, <clears throat> and I'll read 1 through 17. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching uh, in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the, with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That's the baptism of Jesus. <clears throat> the record of this baptism uh, begins with John the Baptist uh, appearing on the scene. And this is after 30 years, really, of no word about him at all. John's birth was mentioned at the beginning of Luke, and then it's pretty much crickets. But now, here he is, he's out in the wilderness, preaching repentance and warning people uh, to turn from sin. And John is functioning in the role of a prophet. He's the first one to be recognized in that role after basically 400 years uh, of silence from God, no one speaking for God, no one calling Israel to repentance, no one warning of judgment. 400 years without a word, and then... John shows up according to God's preordained plan and perfect timing to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And he's out there dressed in camel's hair. He's eating locusts and honey. Kind of weird. And uh, he's definitely not telling people God loves them just the way they are and they can have their best life. Now, that was, that was not John's message. No, he's, he's telling them to repent. Me, he says, repent, you brood of vipers, or God's going to cut you down. And apparently this message was accomplishing God's purpose because people from all over were going out to him uh, to be baptized. They were confessing their sins, getting baptized in the Jordan River. And there was apparently a huge spiritual awakening that was taking place in Israel at this time. And some believe that the numbers may have been upwards of the hundreds of thousands. So John's ministry was, was a big deal, and God was definitely using, using him to prepare for the public ministry of Jesus, prepare people for the public ministry of Jesus. Now, we do need to understand that John's baptism was not the same baptism uh, that we practice. It was not Christian baptism. It wasn't a baptism in the name of the Trinity wasn't focused on identification with Christ, uh, wasn't focused on redemption, resurrection, or new life. It was all about confession. It was all about repentance from sin. And this type of baptism, um, it already had a long history with the Jewish people. There was uh, a baptism for Gentiles who had converted to the Jewish religion, had trusted in the God of, the, of Israel, God of the Bible, and they believed the covenants, they were following the law. And these uh, converted Gentiles uh, were considered unclean 
and spiritually unclean, uh, so they were prohibited from worship or fellowship, so they had to be cleansed. They needed to be washed, and that's what the baptism of those converts uh, symbolized, cleansing of their sin. And John's baptism was essentially um, symbolic of the same thing as the Gentile, um, Gentile convert baptism. It was the washing away of sin, symbolic of the washing away of sin. There were also um, different cleansing, cleansings or uh, ritual washings in the Old Testament. Just a couple of examples of that would be Numbers 8, 5 through 7. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification upon them and I guess they were Presbyterians, sprinkling water. And let them go with a razor over all their body and wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. And Leviticus uh, 17.15 says, And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he's a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening, then he shall be clean. So these ritual washings are also mentioned in Hebrews 9.10 where it speaks of various washings um, in the Old Testament. And the Greek word there is actually baptisms, various baptisms. So there were also extra-biblical ritual washings and baptisms uh, amongst some of the Jewish uh, sects like the Essenes. John's baptism um, was unique, though, and it carried its own special significance uh, beyond Jewish and Old Testament ritual. First of all, he baptized in the Jordan, and that alone carried significant meaning because the Jordan, um, Jordan River was where Israel crossed over into the promised land after the exodus, after 40 years in the wilderness. And it was also there where Elijah was last seen before he was caught up into heaven. Jesus identified John as the expected Elijah that would come and prepare the way of the Lord, Matthew connecting those two, uh, those two individuals and those two events. Matthew eleven thirteen through 14 says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And that it would be a reference that Jesus is making to Malachi 4, 5 through 6, which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So John's preaching repentance um, from sin, baptizing all of these sinful, rebellious Jews, and then a shocking thing happened. Jesus comes and asks John to baptize him. So there's a few things that we need to consider in order to understand why this would have been so shocking uh, to John. And if you're uh, following along on the notes and you're taking notes, this would be under the heading of the baptism of Jesus. So one of the problems with the record of the baptism of Jesus is that many of us, especially if we've been believers for any length of time, we've read that story over and over again over the years, and we've become so familiar with it that the significance and the, the impact 
um, of the event has little or no effect on us. That's probably true of much of what we read in Scripture. There's no surprise, there's no amazement at what's happening. But it was surprising, and it really was amazing. It was even shocking to John the Baptist. John, you know, was, of course, uh, he was a cousin of Jesus, and so John knew him well. He was thoroughly, also thoroughly acquainted with uh, all the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. And he understands himself, John, to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He understood his role in the fulfillment of the prophecy. So now Jesus, his cousin, shows up at the river and asks John to baptize him. And, you know, we don't really know at what point uh, in the day this is taking place or how many people are there. But we do know that when Jesus makes this request, he gets pushed back from John. John argues with him. And in Matthew 3.14 says, John would have prevented him, saying, I need, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Now, the reason for the pushback from John is because he knew who Jesus actually was. He knew that his cousin wasn't just some good guy who never seemed to get in any trouble growing up and was really smart and godly. No, John understood that Jesus was the promised Messiah. He understood that Jesus was the Holy One of Israel, the one that he, John, was preparing the way for. So Jesus, the Messiah, certainly didn't need to be baptized, certainly not a baptism of repentance. So now we're going to talk about judgment. You might wonder what was going through John's mind or how he viewed baptism in relation to Old Testament events. Was he considering how Israel had passed through the Red Sea? Israel was saved, but the Egyptians were drowned. Salvation for Israel, but judgment for Egypt. And the Apostle Paul refers to that in 1 Corinthians 10.2. He says, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Or possibly he was considering the flood where Noah and his family were saved in the ark, which Peter later uh, relates to baptism in 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21. Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So these analogies for baptism, the flood and the Red Sea, were terrifying examples of God's wrath being poured out, of God's judgment on faithless and unrepentant rebels, covenant breakers. And at the same time, the people who trusted in God passed through these water ordeals, these baptisms, and were saved from God's wrath and judgment. So if this was even remotely in John's thinking, it's no wonder that he was shocked and reluctant to baptize Jesus. Jesus didn't need repentance. He wasn't under the threat of God's wrath. He was the Messiah. And if anyone needed repentance and rescue, it was him, John. So that explains uh, the exchange that's recorded in Matthew 3, 14 through 15. 
John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Then Jesus answers him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. What Jesus says here, um, probably one of those instances where he draws on the prophetic words of Isaiah, pointing to the coming Messiah, uh, who he describes as the suffering servant, such as in Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus was that servant, suffering servant. He had come to bear our iniquity. He had come to identify with our sin uh, to take on our sins so that we could be saved from the wrath of God, so that we could be made righteous. And John's baptism was also a warning, and it offered um, escape from God's coming judgment. Much like the judgment that came upon the Egyptians at the Red Sea and the world and the flood, God had made a covenant with people out of his grace and love, and they had broken uh, that covenant. They had violated it. They had not been faithful uh, to the requirements of the covenant, and now judgment is coming. So repent, be baptized, be delivered from the coming wrath of God. That's uh, the baptism that Jesus uh, is receiving or received as our substitute. Now, another thing about baptism, um, this would be under the heading named with sinners. Baptism uh, might also be seen as a naming ritual. In Christian baptism, we're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in this baptism that John performs, essentially what he's doing is he is naming Jesus among the covenant-breaking sinners that deserve God's wrath. Jesus is being identified with them and for them. He's named or numbered among sinners. And John Calvin describes it uh, like this. He says, He willed in full measure to appear before the judgment seat of God his Father in the name and in the person of all sinners, being then ready to be condemned inasmuch as he bore our burden. And then Sinclair Ferguson picks up from there. He says, This is the new identity taken by the holy and impeccable one who from the time of his birth had grown in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus is 30 years old now, the age when priests entered into their full ministry. He's never sinned, never broken any of God's commandments. He has never left undone those things that he ought to have done and, um, or done those things which he ought not to have done. No wicked thought had ever seeped into his consciousness. He had never yielded to any temptation. He was holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. And now he identifies with them. He is named among them. So it's no wonder that John said, I need to be baptized by you. And this is the significance of the baptism of Jesus. He's being named as a covenant breaker, as a sinner, named among sinners sinners. He's identifying with our sin, and then the baptism in the water, which actually symbolizes the washing away of the repentant lawbreaker's sin is now washing over him. The water that had been polluted by all the other sins washed away from all the other sinners 
who had been baptized is washing over Jesus. His baptism, like the crucifixion, is an act of substitution. Jesus is doing what we need to do. He's undergoing the very thing we need to undergo. He takes our place, repenting in our place, being washed in our place, delivered from the coming wrath in our place, fulfilling righteousness in our place. And so John baptizes Jesus. And the symbolism of the baptism will ultimately become a reality when he bears our sin on the cross and bears God's judgment against that sin in our place. He receives God's wrath. We receive blessing and life. And this is the, the great exchange of the gospel. And it's symbolic in baptism, but it's a reality on the cross. Jesus receives the curse. We receive blessing. We're forgiven. We don't suffer God's wrath. We're granted eternal life. We're adopted into God's family. We inherit all that is Christ. We will be glorified. All because Jesus is named among sinners, suffering in our place, receiving what we deserve, bearing the curse. And that's what the baptism, the baptism of Jesus symbolizes. That's what it points to. Now, jumping ahead from that scene at the Jordan to Mark 10, uh, 38, where James and John have asked for special places in Jesus' kingdom, uh, he says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism uh, with which I am baptized? In that case, Jesus was referring uh, not to the symbolic uh, water baptism, but to the ultimate reality, the baptism on the cross, which is what his baptism in the river pointed to. Uh, I want to quote Ferguson again. He says, The reality to which the waters of the Jordan pointed, polluted as they were with the sins of the people, was the flood waters of anathema, which is curse of God against sinners. This is what his baptism meant. He took the curse that is the just reward of a covenant violator in order that we might receive the divine blessing as though we were covenant keepers. It is into this pattern of baptism that our baptism fits, just as his water baptism in the Jordan pointed forwards to his real baptism on Calvary, so our baptism points back to it. Thus, when we are baptized into union with Christ, it is into his death which draws both the guilt and the sting of sin and into his resurrection through which we are raised into a new life altogether. And that all happens at the River Jordan. Now, um, next point is the descent of the Holy Spirit in the event. Um, Baptism, uh, you've seen what baptism is about, and we understand that now at least uh, to uh, a better degree, hopefully. Now I want to look at some of the other elements in the event. So Jesus comes up out of the water, and he may be standing in the water. Maybe he's standing on the bank of the Jordan when uh, another, even more shocking thing takes place uh, for those who were there. Matthew says, the heavens were open. But in Mark's account, Mark's gospel, uh, it's even a more dramatic uh, and graphic description. Mark 1.10, it says, And then he came up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. 
heavens were torn open. So Mark may have been thinking uh, of or possibly referencing in his description Isaiah 64.1, which says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Well, now the Messiah had come, and the heavens have been torn open. And this is the beginning of a profound moment in history. The Messiah has come. And he's come not just to save his people, but to initiate the restoration of the original creation, to repair the damage done by Adam, to reconcile all things to himself, to establish his kingdom, and yet still future to bring about full restoration of the original creation, to create a new heaven and a new earth, and to rule and reign on earth in his earthly kingdom. That's what's happening here. And then the Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus as a dove. And uh, I just want to insert a note here. Ferguson and Thomas, who wrote the book that we use to guide this study, Sinclair Ferguson and Derek Thomas, are both Presbyterians. So they're covenantal in their theology, which also means that in their hermeneutic, the way they interpret Scripture, they they see lots of symbolism, okay? And sometimes that symbolism is accurate and legitimate. Sometimes I think they stretch it a bit. So just be aware of that. So I'm, I'm going to give you their take on some of these uh, things. Uh, a lot of symbolism and may or may not be legitimate. But anyway, they speculate that the descent of the spirit in the form of a dove draws on imagery uh, from a couple of events in the Old Testament, uh, and some of those that were mentioned as symbols of baptism. One was the flood, and where Noah sends out a dove after the water has receded, and the dove comes back with an olive leaf in its beak. You can see the picture with the olive branch. Um, and that was a sign that God's judgment had been, was finished that peace was restored and new creation was beginning. So that's one uh, symbol that they relate to. He may also draw up the image of the very beginning of creation, when the earth was without form and void and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and Genesis 1-2. And the Hebrew word that's translated as hovering in Genesis can also be translated as fluttering, like a dove's wings, fluttering. So they make that connection there. I think that might be stretching it a bit. Possibly uh, connecting the dove's descent on Jesus with that original creation. Anyway, God is ultimately going to redeem individuals who trust in Christ, and he will ultimately bring about a new creation, a redeemed and restored creation through the work of Christ, whether that symbolism is correct or not. So... Um, why does the Spirit come to Jesus? Why does he descend on Jesus? It's not just a symbol. Well, he comes to help him. He comes to strengthen him. He comes to indwell him, to minister to him. He comes to empower him for ministry, to equip him for spiritual warfare, and he comes to lead him. If you remember from last week's lesson, uh, Jesus doesn't rely on or exercise his divine nature to accomplish uh, his mission. 
He doesn't uh, use his nature as God to do what needs to be done as a man. Because if he did that, he wouldn't be able to serve as our substitute. He wouldn't be able to serve as our representative. He couldn't be the second Adam. He wouldn't be able to be tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So if Jesus wasn't exercising his divine nature, how does he remain faithful to the end? How does he resist temptation? How does he fulfill what he's been sent to accomplish? Well, he does it from the beginning to the end by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in his human nature. He was made incarnate by the Holy Spirit. He was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. He grew in favor with God and man by the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit is about to take him into a new phase of his life in public ministry as the Messiah. He's about to enter into prolonged spiritual warfare. And from the coming wilderness temptation, which we'll look at next week, when he's face-to-face with Satan, uh, to the garden, to the cross, he was strengthened, empowered, and enabled in his human nature by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 9.14 says, Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. So, That's the significance of the Spirit's descent. That's the purpose of the Spirit's descent in the baptism of Jesus. But there's still more to the story, and this is under the heading confirmation. God the Son is being consecrated to fulfill his role as Messiah. God the Holy Spirit has come down on him to enable him to fulfill his ministry, and now you hear the voice of God the Father. And I might mention that this text, this picture of all three members of the Trinity together, separate and distinct, gives uh, modalists and Unitarians fits. So, and if you don't know, modalists are people who essentially deny the Trinity. They believe that, that God takes the form of the Holy Spirit when he needs to, then he takes the form of the Son when he needs to, and he takes the form of the Father when he needs to, but... There's never three separate and distinct persons in the Trinity all at once at the same time. And then Unitarians just flat out deny uh, the Trinity. Anyway, God the Father speaks, identifying Jesus as his son, and he initiates his public ministry and messianic gospel work. It's important uh, because much later when the disciples are determining who should replace Judas, Peter makes the point that he has to be someone who had been with Jesus throughout the course of his public ministry, which began at his baptism. Acts 1.22, Peter says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So baptism was certainly seen by the apostles as the beginning of his public ministry, the confirmation or consecration of his public ministry, uh, which was the beginning of his role as, again, as our representative, our substitute. And because remember, again, he didn't just represent us on the cross, but he represented us in life. He lived the sinless life for us that we couldn't, and he died the death that we deserved. He was our representative in life and death. 
There's a number of Old Testament references that can be recalled in the words that the Father spoke. Um, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. That's the record in Matthew. And that echoes the first servant song in Isaiah 42.1, where it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That sounds a lot like what's going on here at the river. And it also echoes Psalm 2.7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that whole Psalm um, Psalm 2 speaks about a king that the entire world will eventually bow before, and that can only be Christ. So here's another point. Some theologians think that the father speaking was for the purpose of reassuring Jesus. And again, I'm going to read Ferguson here. He says, these words may also have been meant to confirm to the human mind of Jesus his identity as the second person of the Trinity. He must be assured of that identity if he is to fulfill his ministry. Everything around him will speak to the contrary. For how can this man be himself God? So as Jesus takes this critical step forward into a journey that inexorably leads to Calvary, the Father opens heaven itself to reassure him. That's Ferguson's take. And Jesus would need that reassurance in his human nature, considering all that he would have to suffer in the next three years, which ends at the cross. Now, active obedience. Um, Just to summarize what we've already gone over, the baptism of Jesus was an act of obedience. He was submitting to the Father's plan for him to be identified as uh, the substitute for sinners who would be saved through him and through whom the entire creation would be made new. He became the sin bearer, suffering under God's judgment and righteous wrath. But I mentioned this before, Christ didn't just suffer as our representative on the cross, which uh, theologians refer to as passive obedience, but he also actively obeyed for us through the entire course of his life, living a righteous, sinless life in our place. And that was his active obedience. It's also the basis for the great exchange or the divine exchange. Jesus gets our sin, we get his righteousness. That's our justification before God. Pardon for sin because Christ paid the price and counted righteous because of Christ's righteousness. The righteous life he lived is applied to us or covers us. And uh, one final quote from Ferguson. I know I'm quoting him a lot, but he just he says these things so well. He says, as the Father looked on the one to whom he spoke, as the Spirit came upon the one who had been baptized, as doubtless the angels looked down in wonder at their king, Jesus now stepped out of the water of the river Jordan, publicly identified as Savior, irreversibly committed to fulfill his Father's wishes as a sin bearer we so desperately need. Now, if you don't think the the baptism of Jesus and all that took place in that baptism, all that it symbolized, all that it looked forward to, all that it initiated, you're not thinking deeply enough, okay? It is an amazing thing that happened. 
the holy God, the Son, left heaven, left all of its privileges to become our substitute, living and dying for us. And Jesus is what we all need. We all need a substitute. We all need someone to do for us what we could never do. He's our only hope when we stand before God. His death paying the price for our sin and his righteous life covering us. Because of his obedience, we've been forgiven, we've been saved, we've been adopted into God's family, we've been granted an inheritance with Christ, and we have glory to look forward to. And all of that started at the River Jordan. So, any questions? Dennis? No? All right. So next week, we look at the wilderness, temptation, and one question. Isaiah 64, 1, 64, verse 1. Okay. All right. You're dismissed early. Oh, Brad. don't believe so. Yeah, I don't I don't believe so. What you mean John the Baptist question to him? Well, I would venture to say that even John had doubts, okay? He knew, but at the same time he he doubted. We, we know, we trust God, we have faith, but we doubt. Uh, I would assume that it's just for ongoing confirmation or reaffirmation of truth. Yeah. Yeah, he was, he was human. Yeah. Yeah. Was what? Yeah. Yeah, he, he said he didn't want to baptize him. He resisted. I mean, he did that because he knew that he was the Messiah, but he still doubts. Not there, so that's not where he's doubting. When he asked him, are you the one? That's what Brad was referring to. Daniel? Yeah? Similar?
Yeah, I mean, even though these guys were with him, I mean, John had grown up with him. Presumably, you know, there was interaction between the two because they were related. And uh, the, the disciples were with him for three years and saw every single thing. They still doubted, you know. But they're human. They have sin natures, you know. Jesus didn't, so they doubted. You know, regardless of how much exposure and how much they had seen. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, it's just kind of semantic. We doubt because we can't comprehend. It's in all it's in all the gospels. Well, he does that in Matthew too. He's talking to yeah. Mm-hmm which is obedience. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. You guys are dismissed. Oh, was there another question? Yeah. No. I mean, he's in the wilderness now. He wasn't always in the wilderness. This 30 years has transpired since his birth. I mean, he's born, you know, Jesus. Growing up with his parents. Mm-hmm. Getting whooped and developing strange uh, fashion, you know. Well, I'm sure, I mean, he was, you know, undoubtedly raised and trained in Old Testament in, in, in the law, the whole, you know, good Jewish people were. And he was also, you know, set aside. He had a special, you know, calling ministry that God had put on him from the time that he was born, before he was born. So, you know, undoubtedly he was raised and trained in, in, in the law, knew, knew the law and the prophets. No, so no, there's no discussion of that. It's just assumed. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know because Scripture doesn't say. There's just a lot of assumptions because they were related. Okay, they were cousins. So there's an assumption that there was interaction between them. You know, over the course of their lives, at 30 years before they both enter into public ministry. Yeah. Right. Huh? Yeah? Maybe. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting to think about those things, but uh, I don't want to speculate too much because it's not in Scripture. 
you know. We would never, you know, come down hard and fast on things that are not revealed. But there are some natural assumptions, the legitimate, you know, logical assumptions that you can make about, like, relationships and things that may have happened. But we don't know for sure. Was it? I know you're supposed to write that down as I'm saying it. First Corinthians ten two. Yeah. All right. You're dismissed. Go get some coffee. <laughs>